Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Thursday edition of The Sheila Zielinski Show. Thank you very much for taking the time to tune into the broadcast. And boy, oh boy, you're in for a very rare treat. There's actually three people that I get guest requests for all the time. One is Charles Lawson. Two is Trey Smith. Of course, we all know why I get Trey Smith requests. (laughs) You got to love Trey Smith. And by the way, Trey Smith is coming on my show as soon as he gets back from Israel. So that's really cool because you guys wanted this next guest. He was number one guest request with Trey Smith coming in neck and neck at number two. It is today on the show. You've requested him. He is the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. It is such a pleasure to have Gary Wayne on the program. Well, Gary, I got to tell you, first of all, I read part of your book and my brain exploded like 55 times. <laughs> I, I'm going over your book and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's not a small read and it's not filled with fluff. <laughs> um, you can say that again after looking at this book anyway. It's clearly evident to me why so many people request you on my show. Welcome. Probably only because I haven't been on your show before. So, <laughs> so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me and very much looking forward to the discussion. And I think whatever we talk about today, I think the audience is is going to like it, and I think we're going to raise some curiosity. Oh, boy, are we ever. Well, listen, take a couple minutes and just tell the new listeners who maybe they've never heard of you, maybe they've never heard of this book, talk a little bit about yourself and just give us a little sneak peek. Sure. I'm, you know, I came back to God in the, you know, on a slow path in the early 80s after being raised Baptist. And what happened was, is I was challenged by my brother to read a book, and the book was, and some of the audience may recognize the name, because yeah, I think he was very influential. He uh, his name was Hal Lindsey, and he wrote a book called you know the late great planet Earth in the seventies. Yeah. I was challenged to read that, so I read that, and it just terrified me. And I <laughs> wanted to verify it and uh, see whether or not it was true, made up, misconstrued, whatever. And the more I researched it, the more I realized whether or not you agree with all of his interpretations or not, he was pretty much bang on. And so I wanted to learn more. And that sort of started me on the path back. And prophecy became a real passion of mine. And I also had a passion in history and in mythology. And so this was able to sort of match things up as I decided I wanted to log all the different prophecy narratives and doctrine narratives in the Bible. And so when I went to write my first book, I wanted to write what I think, what I intended to be was a short, easy book, see whether I could get published and see whether it would sell or anybody would have any interest in it, because I, I, I want to write more prophecy books. And so I decided to connect Genesis 6 with end time prophecy. And so I thought it would be quick and easy, but somewhere along the road to the Colosseum, I went down the different rabbit holes <laughs> after I started to marry up parallel accounts, at least uh, similar accounts in other cultures and religions, with what it says in the Bible. And then as I dug deeper into that, that got me into the secret societies. And then I really went down the rabbit hole, and that really got me going into a completely different sort of direction than what I thought I was going to write. Ultimately, same kind of book, but a lot more connecting of the dots in it. So, you know, it's a book that covers 6,000 years. It's an investigation into what I call the House of Dragon, about the three major proponents, maybe four, depending on how you want to classify them, in uh, Before the Flood with the Fallen Angels, the Descendants of Cain, and the Nephilim, and how they partner 
and combine and use a knowledge that is provided to the descendants of Cain and that is added to by the fallen angels, which is the illicit knowledge to develop the first religion, uh, is polytheist and is the Enochian religion, uh, the sun cult, bull worship cult that ends up crossing the flood, and how these groups combine to bring about the first apocalypse, and how these groups and organizations and descendants or followers wannabes thereafter the flood get together again and start this all over again and what they've done throughout to affect our history what they're doing today how they're planning to bring about the end time to bring about a rendezvous with destiny that they actually want and so there was i have well over 30 years of research into this over 10 years to write the book and i also took a third out of the book so there's like 98 chapters in the book it's 800 pages over 120 pages of end notes so i want everybody to know where i get my information and go dig into this further and so that's sort of the background on how i wrote the book and a little bit about me uh, i worked in private business for 38 years before retiring a couple of years ago and uh, timed it to, to market the book about as the same time as i was retiring i kind of am still chuckling about the fact that you thought you were going to just you know knock off an easy book here and then plus you cut out one third of the book that to me you find that ironic Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, I thought I was done so many times, but I was just kept being led to dig into this and learn this. And, you know, you could go on endlessly. And I took out over 30% to get it down to a size that we could publish. And this is very long and too long for most people uh, from what I, what I get told occasionally. Um, and the price points you have to be careful of. Yeah, well, we look forward to, in the future, the lost chapters of the Genesis Conspiracy. Well, my publisher wants me to do that, and I put out a lot of information on Facebook and other commentaries, and people say, that wasn't in the book, and that wasn't in the book. Why don't you put out another book just with all the stuff you left out? But I think I want to go in a different direction a little bit, more more into prophecy. What I always find really interesting, because funny, um, when I was reading in your book, there was a book that kind of stuck out to me. You, you mentioned this cutting-edge author Graham Hancock wrote. Now, he did Fingerprints of the Gods, and I was yep. actually just doing some research on Shakti and some of the Egyptian Kemet, and I ran across a couple of his writings. Are you amazed by the, you know, it's everything but the biblical narrative. Are you amazed by that in society? Um, I am to a certain degree, but I'm probably a little bit more hardened to it after years of doing my own research and knowing that whether it's Graham Hancock, who wrote some terrific cutting-edge books, he's a Gnostic. And so they're pushing their agenda. Or if you get into the any of the ancient alien writers and researchers, they do some great work. But again, they're pushing their agenda and they're looking for any conclusion other than the biblical conclusion yeah and you know just as hancock will say when it comes to the flood scientists and seculars are looking for any conclusion other than an actual flood he still has those same types of blinders on and so none of them look at things from all of the information and say you know let's look at all of it and see what makes sense of it so there's a statement in the Bible, there was giants in the land before and after the flood. Of course, there is a lot of different theories. How do you personally account for this statement? Well, I think that is one of the more mysterious lines in the Bible, um, because we actually get giants in Genesis 6, where that's quoted from, of before the flood. And then after the flood, the giants show up again. 
And people, particularly mainstream Christianity and doctrine, do not want to address the giants that show up after the flood because of the everything being wiped out on the flood. And there's not that many ways that this can happen, but so that people don't know, I'm just sort of blowing some smoke here. There are people known as the Rephaim, there are the Avim, there are the Emim, there are the Zamzuzim, there are the uh, Horim, there are the Anakim, and more that are all called giants or Rephaim, depending on which translation that you're using. And if it says giants in the King James Version, you click on that, it goes back to Rephaim, except in three occasions where it says giant, which is Genesis 6 and Numbers 13, where a giant is used twice, and you click on that if you've got a Strong's Concordance, and that'll take you back to the word Nephil or Nephilim, or a tribe of giants. And so you have Anakim that are listed in Deuteronomy 3 as Rephaim, and Anakim in Numbers 13 as the descendants of the Nephilim. So you've got all of these as connected, and almost like a lineage of Nephilim, Rephaim, Anakim, and then the rest of them, because whether or not it's the Emim or the Avim, they're all said to be Rephaim. So we have these giants that show up after the flood. So the question is, is how? If everything is wiped out by the flood, how do they show up? Well, you have to look at two different things. And one is, is, is my preferred position because it just makes things easier to fit together with what we just talked about both before and after the flood. Is in Genesis 6, it says, just let me sort of quote that. It says, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, and here's the key, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men. And so that suggests biblically the easiest way to say it is there's two impassioned incursions one before the flood one after the flood all with a similar result with the impassioned angels would be put into the abyss for the punishment for the violations against creation but other accounts around the world as you get into the different mythologies will show that there are survival accounts of giants all over the world and the easiest one to to look at is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which has Utnaptishtun or Zayazudra, and his family being uh, surviving the flood on an ark. And it, it sounds like it's the same story as Noah, but it, only on the macro level. So when you get into the details, everything is completely different. All the different details about it, other than it's telling about a flood story. So it's either a copy of the Genesis story, or it's a parallel account. And I'm actually fine with either way, but I prefer as a copy off the Genesis account as with I prefer with giants being recreated after the flood. But Apnapishtin, or Zayazudra, is two-thirds God and one-third human. So he's Nephilim, and he's the archetypical Nephilim to resettle the world after the flood. And, in, and he's the king of Aruk, and out of the, uh, the Sumerian king's list. And so there's the rest of his family. So this is a Nephilim survival story, and is worn by the gods or the fallen angels. And again, so the details get quite a bit different. But what's also interesting about the Epic of Gilgamesh, it is being told by Gilgamesh, and he's talking to his friend for the most part throughout the series, although there's somewhere after where Anakedon is no longer there because he's killed for killing King Hambada, which is another strange, crazy story of the Cedar Forest and a kingless, a lion type of chimera-type uh, king god. But I'm going down a rabbit hole that we don't have time for today. So where I'm going with this is, is that Gilgamesh is created after the flood. He is also two-thirds god and one-third human, and so is Anakedon, who is created to offset the evilness of Gilgamesh. So we have 
in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have a recreation after the flood, and you also have a Nephilim survival story. If you get into something like the Greek pantheon, in Greek legends, you have Deucalion and Pura surviving the flood in an ark and landing on a mountain. Again, very, very similar story, and everybody says that's just the Greek version of Noah. Well, no, it's not, because Deucalion is son of Prometheus. Prometheus is both a titan and a god titan, so a Nephilim, earthborn, and also a god. So whether or not Deucalion is the son of a Nephilim or the son of a god, it is the same Nephilim story again. So there are accounts all around the world of Ark stories. The flood story is on every continent, in every culture, and same with the story about the giants being connected to the flood story. So again, it comes down to what you want to believe. I'm comfortable with either, but my preference is that a, a second and passion recreation is the easiest to deal with and you're not dealing with legalistic sort of explanations as you get into like Genesis 6 and 7. Uh, you're going to see where God is going to destroy everything on earth, but he's talking about everything that he created. And you could legally look at that and say, God did not create the Nephilim, it's the fallen angels that did that. Right. I read a lot of these forums and there's a lot of confusion about the Watchers. A lot of people say they're the Nephilim, the Nephilim are the giants, the Watchers are the giants. No, no, the Watchers are a third of the angels that fell. And then some people think they're demons. There's a lot of confusion about the giants, the Nephilim, the Watchers and demons. Get into that. Yeah. So the 200 is a particular order of fallen angels. So they're what there's known in Enoch that you're referring to and going to Mount Hermon as the Watchers or the Grigori. Right. Uh, if you want to look at it from a Greek translation. These are seraphim angels. These are very high-ranking angels. And we know they're seraphim because we get descriptions from all around the world that these offspring look like serpents. And we know that kings, whether it's in the Kishamaya and the Aztec or in Egyptian or in Sumerian gods, these kings are depicted all around the world as, as serpents. And in Isaiah 6, seraphim um, goes back to, if you take that back, as its meaning as seraph, with I am being ones, these are the fiery serpent ones. And then you also get a couple other connections I can make in terms of these seraphs being serpent-looking individuals in both Deuteronomy and Numbers, and the, and the best one is in Numbers where you have the Israelites being attacked by the serpents, the venomous serpents, and Moses is instructed to put this serpent head on a spear that's going to protect them from these these venomous serpents, and is going to also cure them of, of the disease. And this word is seraph. So this is, again, another description that these were seraphims, and the Nephilim looked just like them. So they had this reptilian look and a whole bunch of other different things, but they were definitely uh, a reptilian individual with elongated skulls and glowing eyes and high cheekbones, extended chin and very very hairy generally pale white skin and in some of the Kishamaya in some of the Atlantean and in Egyptian accounts you have either red hair with hazel eyes and or blonde hair with blue eyes just as you get that sort of Aryan sort of mythos that comes down from history which again is all rooted in the same mythology. 
You know, Gary, it's really amazing to me, and I, I find this very fascinating. You mentioned Gnosticism earlier. You've got Ariosophy, Theosophy, the Vril, the Thule Society. You've got Hitler's Lebensform in the Nazi breeding program that was backbreeding to the Nephilim because it ties into the return of the giants. I want you to talk about that and how these, again, these Freemasons, these high-level occult figures, the Madame Blavatsky's, the Aleister Crowley's, the Alice Bailey's, they all have one thing in common. They really revere these entities, these deities, like, you know, Nimrod and Hermes and others. They do. They just are perceiving it through their polytheist lens and through a different sort of accounting of it so that they look at the God of the Bible as the evil God, right? And they look at Lucifer, which is poorly translated in the King James Version, in my opinion, from Hillel, as their God, right? And he's the good God who frees humanity with knowledge and looks after humans' better interest, and they're the children of the light, and he's the angel of light or the God of light, and that Satan and God are equal, and they are that duality that they believe in in Gnosticism that's an equal balance, the yin and the yang that's in perpetual battle. And so, yeah, they, they have a recounting of the same events, just with, a, you know, a different lens on it. And so, if you look at, uh, to start tying this together now a little bit, if you look at the ancient meaning for hero, it's not the same as we sort of understand it today. It is as we're starting to learn about it in the allegorical understanding with superheroes today. But the meaning of hero in the ancient world was understood as the offspring of the god and a human female. So just as Poseidon and Iapetus, which are the same god, just different names, in the Greek mythology takes Clido or Clymene as the wife and produces ten titan kings, uh, or Nephilim kings that are going to rule Atlantis, you have this this whole understanding of what these kings were. These were the demigods. And so Hero was also known as demigod. So these this is where this immortal spirit comes from that's passed on from the fallen angels to this original bloodline of Nephilim kings that usurped both the antediluvian world and the post-diluvian world. And now you have, and you mentioned uh, Nimrod, in the Bible, who is revered on the polytheist side, particularly in Gnosticism and the secret societies, for a significant reason, because he, although they don't claim him to be a giant, he acted very much like a giant. It's what he did at Babel, which is very important to the secret societies. And in the Bible, we know that he became a gibberim, not necessarily Nephilim. Gibberim and Nephilim are two different terms. Gibberim is used 158 times in the Bible, but not always for a giant. Most times, but not always. You have to be careful when applying gibberim. But in this case, I think he probably does become a gibberim. And a gibberim means sort of a mighty warrior and uh, a tyrant uh, and possibly acted very much like a giant and might have actually had his DNA changed. So what happens with Hermes is, is he partners with an individual called Hermes. Or what happens with Nimrod, he partners with an individual called Hermes, which isn't recorded in the Bible, but which is part of the Gnostic and the secret societies belief system. And Albert Mackey writes extensively on this in his book on, on the history of Freemasonry and he puts all the different legends in there. So what, Hermes, what happens to Hermes, he finds the two pillars of Lamech. And these are the two pillars that are represented and understood at the lower levels in Freemasonry as Joachim and Boaz. But these are the pillars of Lamech and also in some of those legends 
Kings from Freemasonry. They're known as the Pillars of Enoch, but Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Jared. Yeah, and this Lamech is also of the Cainite lineage as well. So people need to understand, if because they tend to overlook this, that many of those names in both of those bloodlines of Seth and Cain have similar names, um, and they get conflated, and that's what the polytheists like to do. So what happens is that Enoch inherits the seven sacred sciences from Adam, according to how the Freemasons believe, and develops it into the seven sacred sciences, um, you know, that we would know as, you know, things like masonry, which is geometry, the fifth science, or uh, dialectics, or uh, rhetoric, I won't go through all the seven sciences, and it's combined with, with the illicit knowledge from heaven to take the antediluvian knowledge to a level that's likely greater than what we have today. And we're not in the end times, and we're not like the days of Noah yet, so I think our technology has a little bit more to, to, to go before the end time, although it's developing quickly, and that would suggest that the antediluvian knowledge and technology was slightly greater than what we have today. Now, where I'm going with this is that this develops into the mystical religions that I mentioned earlier, and into the secret societies and the mystery schools to develop these different attributes of the knowledge. But when the flood comes, this knowledge, which is stored and written down now into 36,529 books in nine vaults, is buried under the pyramid. So Hermes afterwards finds these two pillars of Lamech, learns about the seven sacred sciences and a little bit more information, and it also has the directions to go find this information. He brings that back to Babel, and they start to teach and initiate masons and uh, adepts into the, into the craft. And the first manifestation is to build Babel City and then the Babel Tower. And we get a hint of this knowledge when uh, we read in the Bible that working as one people in one language, there's nothing that is basically going to be prevented from them from doing. And then comes the dispersion of the languages. And that splits into the two different religions that leave Babel, Hermes going with Mizraim and Ham to Egypt, and you have uh, Nimrod basically staying in Shinar, which is basically in Babylonia, which is Sumer or Sumeria, and uh, developing the Magi and, and that other pillar of the religion, which spreads this religion around the world. Now, what's interesting with the Freemasons is they look at Nimrod as first Grand Master yeah. of Freemasonry after the Flood. Because they actually take their Masonic organization back to Genesis and to the progeny of, of Cain. And not only he is, is, did he, is he the first Grand Master, he writes the first constitution. And so with his knowledge then, does he somehow alter his DNA and become a Gibberim? Understanding Gibberim is not necessarily Nephilim. And we also know that Nimrod is son of Cush. He's not son of an angel. So if Cush married a hybrid or a Nephilim uh, created after the, the flood, then he's more of a hybrid Nephilim as what an Amorite would be or you know, the Canaanites married into. And so this whole religious system, whether it's secret societies or whether or not it is Gnosticism or it's theosophy that they created to bridge science and religion together for the end time religion or the new age, or if you get into Hermeticism, which the secret societies also absorb, or if it's Zoroastrianism, which was the religion of the Aryans and the Mesopotamians that went over to, to the Indus Valley and then further east that developed those religions, this is the same root religion. 
This is the same root history that they're all reveling in, and they're all talking about. And what people need to remember is about all of these different pantheons that are around the world, they are the same pantheon, just different vernacular names. And they also may have a few different rituals, but essentially they're the same Enochian religion that survived the flood. It's funny, one of the books, Alistair Crowley actually talks about the Enochian religion. And of course, he was a high-level Freemason and also high-level witch. Of course, we see the alien-type-looking creature that he summoned, Lamb, which is a whole show unto itself. But they're really into bringing gods back. You know, if it's not Crowley and the raising of Osiris, this Egyptian paganism and Kemeticism, which is ironically exactly like the Kabbalah, which is unbelievable. You could literally superimpose it on one another. You know, Crowley actually considered him to be more of a Horus figure, so more of an antichrist figure, so a son of, a son of the god in, in their type of thinking, although he seemed to be channeling other spirits other than Horus. So yeah. it's, 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 I'm not sure how he thought he was, was uh, also Horus, but that doesn't mean they have to always make sense. But yeah, they're always trying to bring these gods back and I think people need to understand, at least from my perspective, on how I view things, is that not all of the fallen angels were put into the abyss, and not all of the demons. Uh, promiscuous ones from the fallen angels are in the abyss. Probably gods like Azaziel and the other ones that are listed in the Book of Enoch, and perhaps some of the most of the vicious of the demons, and uh, the, maybe the Krabamelu, which are sort of a demon type of god I can touch on in a few minutes if you like. Um, and they're trying to release them, right? And that's what's going to happen in the end time in Revelation 9. That's what they're trying to do. And you need to develop the technology to be able to do that. And if you look at what was going on in Babel, um, understand what I said that, Nimrod built this in, in Shinar or Sumer, is, is this more of a translation, a transliteration of Sumer, and Babylonia is located in Sumer, and if you get into Sumerian mythology, you have accountings and a couple of different legends of Enmerakar, who is also third generation after the flood, at Eridu, who does basically the same thing Nimrod does. But that's another sort of rabbit trail. But where I'm going with this is, is that he's, Nimrod is also the father of the Akkadians as, and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And as they descend out of him restarting civilization there after Babel. And in Akkadian, Babel doesn't mean confusion of languages as it does in Hebrew. What it means in Akkadian is Bab as in gate and El as in God. So a gateway to the gods. So one wonders whether or not Nimrod, who imposed this religion of worshipping these fallen angels, who would have believed that the god of the Bible is the evil god who caused the flood and locked away his gods that he is now implementing in his pantheon to worship, he maybe was trying to release those gods from the abyss. And again, this is a story I think that sort of happens over and over and over in history about bringing on the end time and the showdown with God that they're all trying to do. And it's all about sort of resurrecting the false messiah as well, uh, either in a reincarnation or an incarnation to, to lead the people of the earth in partnership with the fallen rebellious, rebellious angels um, to rebel against the, the God of the universe. So get into, Gary, a little bit more about the giant, the, I guess, the descendants of the giants and the importance of these bloodlines. 
uh, you know, when we talk about giants today, I tend to talk about the descendants of the giants and the bloodlines of the giants as they come down through the pure bloods and through the royal bloodlines and the people who really run the world. And over time, you have to add in some outside blood to prevent blood diseases like the royals have had over the time, like the Habsburg jaw and yeah. all sorts of hemophiliac disease. So you have to sort of add in. And all of that has brought them into more of a likeness to us and um, size-wise as well. And so if you look at Akhenaten, and depending on the chronology that you want to use, whether it's 1250 BC or 1400 BC, and go, you had a chance to go to a King Tut museum, you're going to see the serpentine-looking individual with this high cheekbones and protruding uh, chin and big slanted eyes and this elongated skull. And he is, you know, one of the sort of TSN turning points, uh, to use a Canadian term, but it's a turning point uh -huh. of history be as one of the dragon kings and is very, very significant in occult history. And that's why we hear of King Tut and Akhenaten and Nefertiri all the time, because they keep their history and their genealogies alive. So even after 2,000 years, there's some resemblance there, but you see sort of this morphing into more like a, a human-type look. And so when we talk about possibly Nephilim coming back in the end time, that's either going to happen through, you know, the impassioned angels being released and recreating them in the end time, if it happens that way, or it's going to be the descendants, or it could happen through DNA manipulation and other types of technologies to create sort of the new man concept, which is they've been trying to do, which is, you know, the Nazi term. But again, you understand the, they had the Aryan belief system from Thule, which is just another Atlantis, and they believe they're Aryan people descended from giants in their theology of Ariosophy, which was a spin-off of Theosophy, that they were trying to recreate through the blood or the vril and backwards engineer or by genetics reproduce through pure bloodlines the giant concept of, of the human in the physical form on Earth. So this, this concept we're not done with. However it plays out in the end time, it's going to play out. So we need to understand that these bloodlines are here today. They're trying to get into the abyss. They're trying to bring about the end time. And they need to do a few things to bring this all about. Some of the requirements are world government and the world religion. In world government, we see the globalists working on all the time. That's because they are funded and controlled and directed by the secret societies to bring this about. And the only thing preventing them from bringing world government about and bringing about the end time is the restrainer. And until God removes the restrainer, try as they may, it's not going to happen. But the pieces are getting closer and they continue to work because they'd love to pick a time that's not on God's time to do this. But they'll accept God's ordained time because they want this rendezvous with destiny. And your universal religion is what is going to be the glue that brings the world together along with other catastrophes. But they need this universal religion to bring together what they call the spark of the divine, the disseminated in the human race that descends from the Nephilim to allow them to evolve into gods. And this is that great, that harmonic convergence that you hear about in, in the New Age. And it's talked about in occultic speeches like the Bushes would have gave um, about the thousand points of light. Yeah. So when they talk about that, that's what they're talking about in this new world order is government and religion so that they, not mundane humans, but those with the bloodlines and the spark of the divine and the gene of Isis, as they like to call it, are going to evolve into gods. And you see that kind of reflected in the Georgia 
guide zones where they have, and those it's clearly a Rosicrucian ideology that was put in the guide zones, from my interpretation and understanding at least, that they only want 500 million. And so they only want enough mundane humans to serve them. Right. Well, there's a very interesting statement in Isaiah 13.3. It also ties in with Enoch 10 and 15. There's a Septuagint translation, Open the gates, ye rulers. I give command and I bring them. Giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. Talk about the giants fulfilling this wrath, the idea that they're coming back. And then sort of part two of this is, just earlier you touched on the abyss. What again, now clarify this for me, what is the point of them opening? up the abyss? Well, I think they want their sort of leaders. So as we said, the most evil of the watchers and the angels and probably the highest of the hierarchy were put in the abyss. There's other rebellious angels outside the abyss, along with demons who are still affecting the world until these ones get released. And these are sort of, you know, when they talk about these ones, these are the spirit guides that the secret societies and the polytheist religions are actually speaking to, whether or not they want to call them ascended masters or the great white brotherhood or whatever they want to call them. But these are from the spirit realm and probably heavily uh, with the demon spirits. So they're trying to bring out these leaders so that they can actually complete the rebellion in the end time. They're trying to bring this about through technology, and that's why we're seeing as we get closer to the end time such a ramp up in the development of knowledge and technology that seemingly is a bit unaccounted for, just as the Nazis were developing their weapons and technology out of nowhere at such a rapid pace, it's not explainable through sort of normal scientific development i mean to develop jets and time machines and one-winged aircraft and you know super tanks and all the things that they were creating is was just beyond what they could do in such a short period of time and we see this going on today and it's not that it's because we're getting more knowledge i think the secret societies which control the sciences uh which is why that relationship people should understand in my opinion the relationship between science religion and the secret societies and the bloodlines to understand the whole picture are trying to bring about this high technology. So now we see some of this starting to converge. So you get something like CERN going on. And of course, CERN is uh, not just a standalone name or an acronym. CERN is comes from two gods you could pretty much label as the CERN word. So the first one is a druidic Celtic god called Cernunos, and it's very much like a pan god, uh, or an Azazel, or a Baphomet god, a goat god, and a god of nature, a fertility god. And there's also the Etruscan god named Cern. And Shiva would be equivalent to this god of the underworld, which uh, you have these sort of Shiva and Eastern mysticism things in the iconology. And so when you look at the pantheons, you have an underworld god like Mott, who's the brother of Baal, who's the sky god, right? Just as you have in the Egyptian pantheon, you have Apollyon, uh, also known as Apollo. And Apollyon is the name for Abaddon in Hebrew that is in the abyss. And these are all the same gods out of the same pantheon, whether it's Shiva, Cern, 
they're all the same. And so that's why you have that iconology. But what's going on at CERN is, is that they're doing two different things that are going on there. One is that uh, they say they're trying to get to the creation of the universe and, and the spark. Um, I think that's more of a cover story, and they may be doing some research on that. But they're dealing with sort of interdimensional concepts here with what they're trying to do at CERN. And they're bringing in quantum computing, which basically permits them to work in different dimensions to, to make this happen. And they're also bringing along AI to work alongside of it because quantum computing is very much single purpose. So they need to be able to expand that. I think what they're doing here is a couple of things. They're looking uh, to free uh, through the interdimensions and find a, a technological key, so to speak, to release the angels from the abyss. And secondly, they're looking for the, what they would call the God particle, even though they like to dismiss that, that that's a misnomer. And the, guard, <laughs> yeah. the God particle is, is what they call in Eastern mysticism, the Atma particle or the Atman particle. And this is an invisible particle that sits and works through all of the different particle, particles at the quantum level. And through quantum entanglement, communicates through all of these particles all at once. And this is the source of life and the source of all knowledge. So this is the knowledge that they're trying to also tap into that they're looking for. And it's interesting that all of the scientists who did original quantum mechanics and continue to do it were all versed in Eastern mysticism and specifically say if you want to understand quantum mechanics and to develop it, you have to study the up and shad so you understand what you're doing. So again, understand the, the relationship here between religion and science. It's not a sort of cold, objective perspective. It is in a pursuit of a polytheist agenda. So they're working with AI, they're working with interdimensional capabilities, and they're trying to free the fallen angels out of the, the abyss because the abyss, even though in the Book of Enoch will say that it's it's located within the earth, if it is, it's an interdimensional location within the earth that they're going to need to get to. So did I sort of bring all of that together well enough, Sheila? Yeah, no, wow. It, well, because that really does, all the cosmology, the alchemy, the sciences, the AI, as you mentioned, fallen angel technology, if you will, for just lack of a better word, you know, this all kind of ties together, doesn't it? It is. It's all about that knowledge and uh, using that knowledge for evil and not for good, for rebellion as opposed to for peace and, and working for the good of, of humans. And so, you know, the angels know that they can't win this war. Uh, they knew, I think, all along they couldn't win this war, but they're deluding humans that they can win this war. It's like the battle in Star Wars where uh, you have this uh, good versus evil and that you have to fight for your freedom against the evil empire, which is the allegory for Christians and uh, the God of the universe and the loyal angels to uh, God. This is a concept that I think that people really needed to take a step back on. They were looking for the fallen angels I'm referring to now, probably more for a separate realm, separate from God, in their rebellion to reign over. Just as Lucifer, as he's called in Isaiah, which I think is, as I said, should be Hillel or Satan should be in there, is said to have wanted to have raised his thrown into the heavens like God and be like God. He wants to have his own realm. And and again, that is saturated through occult and polytheist doctrines that they want to have their own world that they can live in separate from God. And uh, this is what this whole battle is, is coming about as. So 
they don't believe that they could win. And they also, you know, know that they've already lost. So when Jesus is in the grave for three days, as it's said in First Peter, he goes and speaks with these spirits in the abyss. Jesus is telling them, your rebellion is over. The resurrection is about to happen tomorrow when I rise. And humans are going to be raised above angels in the future world. And your rebellion is over and you will be going to the lake of fire. And so all they can do is is lead as many humans as they can away from God to rebel so that they won't be raised um, in, you know, in, in the resurrection and in the future time above angels. Wow. Well, in your book, you talk about the seven sages, and you also talk about something you touched on earlier, the seven sacred sciences. Talk about those and do those tie together? Yeah, the seven sages is, this is not a biblical understanding, but when you understand from what I said earlier about that there are different survival stories in polytheism and different religions and legends all around the world on all continents, this is part of that. And yes, it is connected to the seven sciences, but not quite maybe the way people might think. So these are seven sages that are either demigods or humans that are taught in um, a order of priest kings and priests before the flood. And so if you know, have heard of the term the, the Sabeti or the Shebtiu yeah. or the followers of Horus or the companions of Horus, this is that group of priests that are taught this knowledge in religion. And so the seven sages after the flood are protected to survive and restart civilization with the sciences, with the religion, and to teach humanity who have lost everything, who survive civilization and to rebuild the civilization that was lost. We don't know whether or not that was true or not, that that's how it happened, but that's what they believe. And one thing I, I try and get in uh, as much as possible so that people understand is it's not necessarily, when I talk about these things, this is what I believe when I'm talking about polytheist beliefs. What's important to know is it's, it's what they believe, and it's what they do with that information that is really important. And so they're trying to build a new Atlantis, which is why that new Atlantis term is always part of occultic sort of mythos of this new age that they're trying to build, just as Francis Bacon wrote about the new Atlantis, which, you know, one world government and one world religion that works in harmony with uh, sciences. And this new Atlantis is based on, you know, the Atlantis mythology, of course, and I mentioned it earlier with these 10 Titan kings. They were known in the Golden Age, which is another term for the new age, or Zeptepi, as it's known in Egyptian mythology, they were known as the the helm of world government in the antediluvian world, and they were trying to take over the world before, as Plato talks about in Critias and Timaeus, that the Athenians stopped them, led by Hercules and other titans. Um, but they were trying to form a world government with ten kings. So what's important to understand about that is is one of the groups that was formed in the late 60s, and you, you may uh, may remember this, Sheila, is that um, Pierre Trudeau, who was prime minister in the late 60s, was a member of this club called the Club of Rome. Yep. Oh, yeah. Maurice and, Strong. 
Yeah, and so this Club of Rome it reports directly to the uh, Rosicrucians, um, as, and understand there's a hierarchy in these secret societies. So they bypass like Freemasonry and the Illuminati, and they're they're reporting right to the major intersection that's going to go up to the pure bloods. And about half the Rosicrucians are pure bloods, so they report directly to the Rosicrucians, and their goal is to bring about world government. And they've divided that government into 10 zones. You can call them 10 trading blocks, 10 spheres of influences, 10 groups of nations, or 10 empires. But they've arbitrarily divided those uh, regions up that they're going to try and bring about world government to bring about the new Atlantis. And understand Francis uh, Bacon was a Rosicrucian. He is also the inspirational founder of the, of the Royal Society, which all science pays homage to even today, and that's the birth of modern science in the Western world. And the Royal Society was created by Rosicrucians and Freemasons. And so understand this connection again between religions. But where I'm going with this is that if you look into prophecy now, and you look at Daniel, and you look at Revelation, this world government is these 10 groups of nations that they're trying to form. So they're trying to form, literally, this new Atlantis with their titan royal bloodline kings that are going to have their pantheon of gods to worship to, and they're going to rebel, as they did in the Antediluvian Epoch, which caused the first apocalypse again, and this time we're going to have an apocalypse by fire. You know, with Pope Francis being such the devil that he is, every other day he comes out with some just bizarre antichrist statement, being that the Catholic Church is the largest religion on the planet. It's not really surprising that its leader is really getting the Catholics acclimated to this idea, hey, we're going to be baptizing aliens. And they have all sorts of departments dedicated to studying this stuff. You look at what's going on on Mount Graham, and these very cryptic types of statements coming out of the Vatican, they're observatory branch, their astronomy branch, even the head of the Pontifical Academy of Science, as I talk about in my book, Green Gospel, saying, you know, Catholics need to go back to earth worship. That's a whole show into itself, really. But this is really indicative of something. I mean, either the Catholic Church is going to lead the charge in saying they're here, you're real alien creators, you know, setting us up for that alien card. But there's also an overall goal here to destroy Christianity. So tie that in as well. Well, Gary, because the alien thing, that's ubiquitous now. It is, and uh, they are on record, and they have a special department for the alien thing, and they fully expect that we're going to have this introduction to aliens, and I think that's also part of the end time and part of the deception. So they want to prepare to receive them into their church and baptize them and, and, and take them through communion and so on and so forth. And they also have a telescope that they call Lucifer that they're studying the skies for for alien life, which is also a bit bizarre. So this has to happen first, and they have to come out with in partnership because uh, the Jesuits are part of the secret societies, you know, that are working towards uh, putting together world government, and the Jesuits come from the secret societies within the church to do their bidding, and so. There has to be a movement away of doctrine of so much in partnership with these other secret societies and Gnosticism that they're going to deny Jesus as the Christ. And they're going to come out with evidence um, that is so-called evidence, alleged evidence, that it will be false to say, hey, Jesus did not die on the cross. And of course, anybody who's seen the Da Vinci Code knows their Gnostic beliefs. So that's what they're really going to come out with to try and 
and de-deify Christ. And they're also going to declare Paul a heretic because they say if you if you didn't have Paul's teaching in the New Testament, he would not Jesus would not have been raised to deity status. So they're going to lower Jesus down to a prophet status, like a Zoroaster or a Hermes. Someone sent on the way, as they like to call, not in the way that Jesus talks about in the Bible, but in the way of Hermes, the way of Cain, to lead humankind to enlightenment, which is this knowledge, because become gods, you not only have to have immortality, but you have to have all of this knowledge. So it's the two-part component that they need to offer. I think Rome is going to be the city that is Babylon, and it is not just a city, it's a religion, and in the first three and a half years and the years before the last seven years is going to be very, very powerful and control commerce. And so Rome, or Babylon, uh, if you take that back as it's used in Revelations or in Peter again, take that back to Greek, it's an allegory as one of its variations for the, the city of Rome. And they used to use that name in John's time who wrote Revelations as a as an allegory for Rome because if you spoke against Rome, you'd get the death penalty. So they would use, in the Gnostic terms, that's called a Pesher allegory. I don't think the Apostle John was writing in Pesher. I just think he used a common understanding of, of the metaphor because Pesher is a Gnostic term, Gnostic Kabbalistic term to be specific. Um, so I look at Rome as being Babylon. So if you're going to bring about a universal religion, and, and, and have one religion of the world, what you're going to have to do is destroy Christianity because that's always the main adversary to this all coming about. And so you're going to have to destroy the deity aspect of Jesus. And you're going to have to change the doctrine within Christianity to make this happen. So I always look towards what's going on at the Vatican and in Roman Catholicism to bring this along. Now, if you look at and this is not canon, if you look at uh, the prophecies of Malachi, who was a Catholic priest in the 1200s who listed all the different popes that would happen until the false prophet comes in the end time, he would give a couple of quick indications to know that you know who they're understanding. He's been quite accurate according to other people. I haven't studied those prophecies with all those popes that closely, but just using that as what they're talking about, you have Pope Francis. I do not believe he is the false prophet. I do not believe he's Antichrist, and he's too old, and he's got a lot of things to do. But this last pope is actually called Antipope. And anti-pope, as with antichrist, can mean opposite of, or it can mean replacement. Right. And in this case, the anti-pope is, if he is Francis, is a replacement pope because Benedict is still alive. And he's also known as the black pope in this prophecy, if it is a prophecy. And he was a leader of the Jesuit, which is the black pope. So he is now also the white pope and the black pope. So you have black pope, and this is the first time a Jesuit has become pope, and a replacement pope. And what this pope does in, in, in these prophecies, if, it, if they are prophecies, is, is destroys the doctrine within the Catholic Church, changes it completely to prepare the way for false prophet. And false prophet prepares the way for Antichrist, just as Elijah prepares the way for the second coming of Jesus and John was at, an, at Elijah for his first coming. And so this whole understanding of how Christianity gets all but destroyed and rebuilt, and under the housing of the Roman Catholic Church in, in Rome on Seven Hills, is that 
they have to de-deify Jesus, and it's going to begin within the Catholic Church and then spread to the rest of the Christian churches and then to the rest of the world. Then also I would advise to follow the Mary apparitions yeah. and the, and the, you know whether it was Lords or Fatima, and they all have these prophecies sort of leading to that end. But the one that's not talked about a lot is Medjugorje. Right. Medjugorje actually initiated three children. They have a set date to come out, and they are going to announce to the world that if you don't convert to the one true religion, this disaster is going to happen. And they're going to do 10 warnings, and they're going to get consequentially bigger and worse as, as they roll out. So they're going to have people convert in fear to create the new Babel as it was in Babylon. And that's exactly what people said in Babel is, is we need to come together as one people or be wiped from the face of the earth. It's the same doctrine. And she's pictured as in these visions, as they are with all the married divisions, as the lady in Revelation 12, which is a complete deception. But that's another rabbit hole. So I would expect this to begin there in conjunction with the secret societies to all but destroy Christianity, but to, to keep sort of this christian sort of veneer on it and then say but there's all these other gods and your bible is inaccurate and you need to understand it allegorically and not literally which is what the gnostics do and sort of bring the religions together the people who stand strong in their faith and on the bible are going to know this is a deception but many will be deceived even if the elect and I think this is why we see this false prophet described as, you know, having the look of a, of a lamb, but speaking like a dragon in Revelation. Well, it really is these bloodlines that want to bring the Antichrist on the scene, isn't it? That's their goal. Yeah, so you have all of these bloodlines, and there's many bloodlines around the world, and there's more than just the, the 13 of Europe, and there's more than just the ones that people like to use in, in North America. But all of them have a intention of bringing on one of their descendants as the Antichrist. So there's going to be competing Antichrists, but only one will rise. And that's why in the Gospels we're told that there will be many Antichrists that come. So And we'll be deceived even with the Gog War, so that when Antichrist does come to power, he will look like and counterfeit the true Messiah. So we have to be aware of that. Now, the big thing to remember in terms of how this is going to win out is understand that abyss has to be opened up, because we also understand in Revelations that the one who once was, now is not, but will be again, comes out of the abyss. So this Antichrist is either going to come out of the abyss, or he's going to be avatared by a demon or an angel out of the abyss to control Antichrist. So bloodline and demonic or angelic, and my vote is angelic as opposed to demonic, and avatar as opposed to possession. And that's why they're trying to get into uh, the abyss. But you can't have the end time come until all the events come together. And so they're going to try and speed up the events, but until the universal religion takes hold that brings about this 10-nation world government as sort of the glue and the catastrophes required to bring all of that about, um, that abyss is not going to be open. Wow. Well, listen, we're almost out of time here, Gary, but I really want to have you back on for another show just to get into more of this because it's just so interesting. Honestly, this book should be 
required reading. <laughs> I'm not kidding when I say that. It's just unparalleled. Um, give out your information, how folks can get this book, how they can follow you on social media, etc. Well, thank you. Um, so if somebody uh, is trying to get a hold of me or trying to figure out how to get a hold of my book, go to first the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. On there, I've got a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So you'll get a good flavor for it. If you want to contact me, I have an email on there. You can contact me through the website. You can also buy a signed copy off of that uh, website. Or you can also connect to barnesandnoble.com and or to amazon.com and amazon.ca and to the kindle version as well and it's also available through most online bookstores and if you wanted to support your local bookstore it may not be on the shelf but it's distributed by bookmasters so they can order the book in for you if you want to follow me or ask me questions and i'll i will always get back to you if you ask me a question I guarantee you that unless i've missed it somehow you can get a hold of me also through facebook and i put out a what i would call a contrarian blog every week on facebook and also post it around so you always find interesting things going on on me and follow me on facebook under gary wayne also have two genesis six conspiracy pages where i do blogging on and also a group gary wayne and the genesis six conspiracy is also a very active group and you can also follow me on twitter at gary wayne 63 at gary wayne 63 Remind people how many chapters are in this book. 98, technically 100 with the uh, preface and the epilogue. Yeah, and just like, what, 10 million footnotes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very well researched. So, And what I try and do is uh, let the spurious forces speak for themselves and then line that up with what we know of what the Bible says and what we go on, uh, what we know is going to happen with prophecy and what we know what happened in history. And I always measure everything against what the Bible says. That's the standard. Yes, exactly. Well, again, I can totally see why people always ask me to bring you on the program. You know, I interview a lot of smart guys, and you might be one of the smartest. This book connects dots that I've never seen connected. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, this is like the must-have book you have to get in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> might be a little high praise, but I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> yeah, it it's, it's the only book out there that I'm aware of that puts the whole picture together, the whole story together, and it will connect more dots than you can imagine. It's not a read that you can do quickly. It is so loaded with information in each chapter that you're going to have to take your time with it. But every chapter is a mini story that leads into the next chapter. And so, and we'll keep coming up as the book unfolds. So, in the, and the average chapter is like, you know, six pages. So that, you know, if you wanted to read one chapter a night, you can get through it. There's just too much information to speed read. You'll just miss too much. Absolutely. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time and coming on the program today. And I'm really looking forward to coming back. Would love to come back and uh, start digging deeper into some of the subjects because you can do a, a show just on, you know, hundreds of subjects in the book. So, yeah, boy, this book, folks, you got to get it. I've got the information linked there. The book is The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Gary Wayne, get in touch with him, follow him on Facebook. Get this book. I'm telling you what, it's going to be my number one recommended book in 2018. Uh, hands down, hands down, you got to get it. 
Again, go to Genesis 6, the number, conspiracy.com, Genesis6conspiracy.com. All that information is linked in the description below. And we are out of time. Very exciting news. The website should be up and running next week. I'm looking forward to that. We have a fantastic back-to-back lineup of incredible guests. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel, and become one of my patrons today. You'll get exclusive content becoming a VIP patron. We'll see you real soon. Good night and God bless.